Well, this message in the book of James is entitled Mercy Triggers. Mercy Triggers. And I went to the food store and got myself some industrial strength mercy. And I'll be spraying this liberally in the message. So with all seriousness, if you have a fragrance allergy, you might want to get in the back row. (laughs) I'm very serious. You know, mercy is a tremendous thing. Mercy is not being given the bad that we deserve. And when we have mercy from God, it also ought to call us to give mercy to others. Isn't the room smelling good? Mercy has that way about it. It changes things. It changes the atmosphere wherever it's dispensed. And when you look at uh, James 2, 1 to 13, let's begin with the end. The last verse gives us the bottom line of our teaching on mercy triggers this morning, and it's verse 13, which says, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is an average Christian? What is a below than average Christian? What's an above average Christian? Really to even try to answer that question is to try to be the judge of another person, isn't it? We are being guided and helped by this paragraph when it comes to evaluating other people when it comes to to judging other people. And the bottom line of what this paragraph is teaching us is that when we try to judge anyone else, we should err on the side of mercy. We should let the mercy that we have received be dispensed and sprayed from our lives on the lives of other people. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Does it in your life? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Does it do that in the life of our church? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Does it do that in your marriage? Mercy triumphs over judgment. The first point I'd like us to see in this whole matter of governing, judging of others and bathing it with mercy is this. When it comes to judging others, Let mercy win. If you win the argument, but you are not merciful, you've lost. When it comes to judging others, let mercy win. You know, people know how to push our buttons. They know how to get our goats. When they do, respond with mercy dispense mercy. Even as God has been merciful to you in Christ, you be merciful to others. When persons fall short of your expectations for them, show them mercy. By the way, when you stand in a pulpit, as long as I have the many years I've been privileged to do so, you see a lot of interesting things. You see people who have fallen asleep. They are out cold. They are asleep while I am preaching. I dispense mercy. I make a choice. Maybe the baby kept them up all night. 
Maybe they're on a medication that makes them drowsy, and when they sit down, they fall asleep. Funny time when this fellow fell asleep. He's sleeping the whole sermon in another church. And as I went to the back to greet the church family, he shook my hand and said, Pastor, that was an excellent message. <laughs> Mercy. Sometimes when you look out of the congregation, there are people looking so strained. Well, maybe they stretched a muscle this week. Maybe they actually are hurting. They are strained. Give them some mercy. You look out over a congregation, and some people look like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice by full immersion. They are just mad. They're looking at me, and they are mad. Maybe they suffered food poisoning last night. Some people, they look so disinterested while you're preaching your heart out. They're just looking. They're just so disinterested. And I say, well, maybe there's a butterfly in the sanctuary. <laughs> Some people look concerned. They're, they're agitated. They just can't get out of the sanctuary fast enough. Well, maybe they just come to the realization they left their car unlocked. Mercy. When you come to judge anyone else, let mercy win. There's a second point in our paragraph. Not just when it comes to judging others, let mercy win, but in the second place, when it comes to judging others, understand that discrimination is sin. Discrimination is sin. Verses two through four James 2, for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Oh, yes, when it comes to judging others, when we are tempted to judge a book by its cover, by what a person is wearing or by what they're not wearing, then we become persons of discrimination and we become persons of sin. You know, favoritism is one of the most uh, effective ways to bring disharmony and fighting in a family. When a will is read and the deceased person in the will leaves the bulk of his wealth to one of the siblings and then some smaller portion of his wealth to the rest of the siblings, you've got a recipe for dissatisfaction, for infighting, and for poor Christmases from now on. Favoritism, discrimination in that sense, is a sin. Also, what about an assembly like ours? What about an assembly like ours? And what happens if a person comes in and outwardly they're well-dressed, outwardly they're uh, attractive in the world's estimation of attractiveness, and people go to that person, shake their hand, give them a hug, welcome. What if there's a person who isn't dressed fancily, a person that may not have an attractiveness in the world's estimation of attractiveness? By the way, Jesus is said in Isaiah that he had no comely attraction. What if a person walked into our assembly who might be dressed differently than we are, who might be very shy, who may not have an attractiveness in the world's definition of attractiveness? What if that person is neglected, looked past, ignored? Then we would be an assembly of discrimination, and we would be in sin. 
When it comes to judging others, discrimination is sin. In verse 4, it says in the NASB, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? The Greek here could say, have you not discriminated among yourselves? Discrimination can be a sin. Of course, there are times when discrimination is not a sin. We ought to be discriminating shoppers. Uh, we ought to price milk at cost rate. We ought to price milk at super value. We got to price milk at fresh market. <laughs> We ought to be discriminating shoppers. We should pay attention to sales. We should pay attention to coupons. We should pay attention to rebates. We should pay attention to the prices. That kind of discrimination is appropriate, using God's money wisely. But when discrimination creeps in for the doorkeepers, literal or figurative doorkeepers of a church body, when discrimination creeps in at those portals, those guards to the doorways into the credible body of Christ here, then that is a sinful problem. When we discriminate because someone is different than us in terms of whether we'll welcome them into our fellowship, that's ugly. When one race is put above another race, that's sinful. When one socioeconomic bracket is favored over another, that's wrong. When a certain status of education or lack of education is a means for separating people in the body of Christ, that's wrong. An address doesn't make you or break you. And it says that that kind of evil discrimination comes from our evil thoughts. Verse four, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges, watch it, with evil motives? The name Mahatma Gandhi is probably familiar to many of us. He, of course, was the renowned leader of the people of India in seeking to overthrow the British colonial rule of his native land. Gandhi was an avid reader, and that reading included the New Testament of the Bible. He read through all of Matthew, all of Mark, all of Luke, and all of John. And it twigged an interest in Gandhi to find out more about this intriguing figure named Jesus. And so the Hindu political and religious leader went to a Christian church in Calcutta to come in and to learn about Jesus. And the ushers at the back of the church building said, you are not permitted. You are not welcome here. This church is for those of higher caste and whites. Not surprisingly, Gandhi turned his back on Christianity and never looked to consider it again. He said this, sometime after that negative experience, he said this. He said, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. When it comes to judging others, if we show discrimination, it's sin. 
Mercy doesn't show discrimination. The third point this morning, when it comes to judging others, pull the mercy firing pin. I worked all week to get these three points to rhyme. (laughs) When it comes to judging others, let mercy win. When it comes to judging others, see discrimination as sin. When it comes to judging others, pull the mercy firing pin. Best I could do. Doesn't mercy smell good? It changes things. It improves things. When we have been the recipients of God's mercy in Christ, when we have seen God, the holy judge, withhold from us all the bad judgment that we so deserve, is it not a call to us to be merciful to others? The person you live with who is your spouse, are you merciful to him or her? The children that you raise, are you merciful to them? And children, are you merciful to your mommy and your daddy? The people you go to school with, are you merciful to those people? The people who teach you in school, are you merciful to your teachers? And teachers, are you merciful to your students? And incredible body of Christ, we come together to worship, to be equipped to do the works of the ministry. Are we merciful toward each other? Are we merciful to the pastors? Are the pastors merciful to you? Now, in this text, under the third point, when it comes to judging others, pull the mercy firing pin, there are four mercy triggers. There are four mercy triggers that we all face that ought to be reminders and causes for us to dispense mercy. You ready? There are four mercy triggers. The first mercy trigger I see in verse five, and it is this. It's the mercy trigger of see the godly poor. The godly person who is materially poor, see that person as precious. See the godly poor as precious. Verse five. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? God picks materially poor people more often to believe in his son and to follow Jesus. Jesus said it's more difficult for a rich person to come to salvation than a camel going through the eye of a needle. And so when we see the godly, materially poor, as we do every day in this city, as we do every day in this country, we should see these precious, godly, poor people as precious because God does. God sees them as precious. Verse five, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? The first mercy trigger is when you see a person who's materially poor but godly in faith in Jesus Christ, see that person as precious. God does. 
The second mercy trigger is to see the godless, materially rich person as being pompous when that's the case. Please look and listen to verses six and seven about now the flip side of the coin. Now we've got a materially wealthy person who's godless. They do not acknowledge God and their wealth. Verses six and seven, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppresses you and personally drags you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? James is saying, if you're tempted to show favoritism to a godless person who opposes Jesus Christ and his church just because he's wealthy, are you going to admire that? Are you going to kowtow to that? Are you going to give preferential treatment to that? I think of the truth be told, we all can fall into that temptation. We see a movie star on television carrying on with all kinds of money and living in a godlike, ungodly fashion, talking down to people, misusing people, using people, exploiting people. And we say, well, boy, she's really rich. She's the best recording artist in the country. You ever see anybody hit a baseball like him? He's fantastic. Future Hall of Famer. I think we're all tempted if we're realistic to say we can look at wealthy people who do not acknowledge God, in fact, go against God's word and God's people, and we could admire them and give them a pass on their behavior that so often is, watch it in the text, exploitive, litigious, and blasphemous. Right in this text, it's saying that the typical godless, pompous person is into exploitation, litigation, and blasphemy. See it in verses six and seven? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich man who oppresses you and personally drags you into court? There's the litigation. Do they not blaspheme the fair name which you have, by which you have been called? There's a third trigger. There's a third trigger for mercy. The first trigger, recall, is seeing the godly materially poor as precious. The second trigger, see the godless material rich as pompous. The third trigger is to keep the moral, excuse me, keep the royal law. Keep the royal law. See it in verses 8 through 11. Keep the royal law. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture. Here it comes. This is the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Watch this verse. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And so a trigger for us to dispense mercy is something the scripture calls the royal law, and then it defines what the royal law is. In verse eight, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know why it's the royal law? It's the royal law because it was given to us by the king of kings. It's the royal law because it was demonstrated by the king of kings. Jesus loved his enemies, his neighbors and his enemies as himself. And it's the royal law because this law is the king of all the other laws. 
Now you say, who is my neighbor? If the royal law is a mercy trigger, then who should get mercy? Who is the object of the royal law, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself? Who is my neighbor? Well, it doesn't, has nothing to do with street numbers in consecutive fashion. We are told many places in the New Testament who our neighbor is. In Luke 10, verse 27, we're taught that any desperate person in need that comes across our path is our neighbor. In Galatians 5.14, we're taught that the weaker brother is our neighbor. In Romans 13.9, it indicates that everyone is our neighbor. And here in James 2.8, it introduces the materially poor to be our neighbors. And how much? Of the whole law, does one have to break to become at the category of a lawbreaker? Just one part of it. Any part of a law, break any one part of a law, and you are a breaker of all the law. It's all or nothing. That's why we desperately need the mercy of God in Christ. He kept the law that we couldn't keep. He kept the law that we cannot keep. He fulfilled the law. And his righteousness and his standing before his father as the perfect law keeper can be conferred to you when you trust him to be your savior. You can be robed in his righteousness, accepted in the beloved, joint heirs with Christ. Mercy triggers. Favoritism is not only evil thinking, it is also law-breaking, and this ought to motivate us to giving out mercy. There's a fourth mercy trigger in our passage, it's found in verses 12 and 13. And the fourth trigger that ought to dispense mercy from us is to realize that we'll be judged by the law of liberty. So we see in this passage the royal law in verse 8. And then we're going to see something in verse 12 called the law of liberty. What's that? Well, let's read verses 12 and 13 first. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the fourth and final mercy trigger in this passage on judging others with mercy is that we must realize that we'll be judged by the law of liberty. And we're to show mercy in our speech, verse 12, and mercy in our actions toward others in verse 12 because we ourselves are going to be judged by the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? The law of liberty is all of the commands of the scriptures. The law of liberty is all that the Bible commands you to do or not to do to be or not to be, to say or not to say, to think or not to think. That's the law of liberty. And it's the law of liberty because when we obey the commands of Scripture, we live in freedom. You know, the happiest horse is in a fenced-in pasture because the owner of the happiest horse puts up fences to keep that horse safe in a pasture where he won't be harmed. God's commands, the law of liberty, is like that. The commands of scripture are not onerous, not killjoy orders from God to kill the joy of our lives. They're fences to mark out safety in our living. Safety in our living. 
The law of liberty is all of the commands of God's word, commands that are expressly given to us so that we can know the freedom, the liberty of living in the will of God. These commands of scripture, which are the law of liberty, are God's timeless moral laws and his code of conduct, whether you were Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, or whether you are in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 22. Through all of scripture, the commands of God are for our good and for his glory. They give to us the timeless moral laws of God. They give to us the timeless codes of conduct that if we would obey these laws, if we would obey these commands, we're safe. We're fulfilled. We're a blessing to others and a blessing to heaven. You know that the New Testament repeats all 10 of the 10 commandments except one. The only commandment of the 10 that is not repeated in the New Testament is Sabbath keeping because now we come together on Sundays, the first day of the week, to mark the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We should still have a Sabbath principle of rest, a regular rest day in the week, but we don't come here on Saturdays. That was Sabbath in the Old Testament. You know, there's some illustrations in life where there are some timeless principles that when we keep to them, we're safe. I scuba dive, as most of you know by now, there are basically two rules in scuba diving. Don't hold your breath and don't dive alone. If you don't hold your breath and you don't dive alone, chances are you're gonna be all right. Or what about cooking? When you cook hamburger, you better not put it on the plate for your family if you know it's red on the inside. You can have E. coli poisoning and other things, right? Or when you drive this week in Nassau, you may not believe there are rules of the road, but there are stop signs and yellow lights and advanced uh, green arrows and different things, speed limits. If we live by those rules, if we drive according to those rules, all things being equal, we'll be okay unless we run into some guy that isn't obeying the rules of the road. Did you know that when a surgeon gets ready to operate, that there is a, a rule of thumb that the surgeon scrubs his or her hands with an antimicrobial soap for no fewer than three minutes and puts the hands under running water? There are certain codes of conduct, certain rules in different fields of life that when you keep them, things go well for you and things go well for the people around you. God says that the law of liberty, his commandments for us are like that. They are a code of conduct. They're a timeless moral law of God that if we'll seek to keep his commands, if we'll, for instance, if we'll be true to our marriage vows, we're not going to get sexually transmitted diseases. If we'll be truthful on our insurance claims, we're not going to be guilty of fraud, etc. Certain non-negotiable laws, they bring freedom. God gives them to us for our good and he gives them to us to reflect his character and he gives them to us so we're in the pasture of his blessings, safe. And we are blessed so that we can bless others.
Now, wouldn't it make sense that if you were to realize that God's commands are binding, this moral law, this standard of conduct, would it not make sense that you would be more merciful to others that you see breaking God's commands? Because you would know, if you're a truth be told, you know that you break God's commands too. Would that not engender mercy? In seminary, there's nothing quite like being in Hebrew or Greek class and the assignment every night in Hebrew and Greek class was to translate a certain portion of scripture from the Old Testament in Hebrew, from the New Testament in Greek, to translate it and then come prepared to read your translation from the Greek to the class. You never knew who was gonna be called on. That's somewhat intimidating. I'll never forget when the Hebrew prof called on one poor chap to translate and it was silent. It was silent for a little while, painfully silent. And he said, Bob, I'd like to buy a vowel. (laughs) I'd like to buy a vowel. And everybody understood because we all had our issues, right? We all had come to Hebrew class not ready to read it or to translate it. And so when he got caught, we weren't going, oh, that's terrible. We were going, glad it wasn't me this time. I wasn't ready either. (laughs) So when you see someone falling short of God's commands, don't pounce all over them. Show them mercy. Say, but for the grace of God, I have a problem with that too. In fact, I still have a problem with that. Let mercy triumph over judgment. Like you, I've been to a lot of funerals. I've conducted my fair share and I've attended my fair share. And I've been to a lot of funerals. And you know what is a word that I very, 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 very irregularly heard at a funeral eulogy? Mercy. I think on one hand, I can think of the times that I have heard the person say, she was extraordinarily merciful. Or he gave mercy to everybody he met in business and in the community and in church. One of the things that I hope could be said about me after I go to glory is Rob Elliott was merciful. He was a merciful person. Because Rob Elliott has been the recipient of so much mercy from God that it behooves me, it's only reasonable that I would want to give mercy to others. This is our passage for today, challenging. Challenging in every way. When it comes to judging others, handle with mercy. When it comes to judging others, let mercy win. Understand that discrimination is sin. Pull the mercy firing pin. See the ungodly materially poor as precious. See the godless materially rich as pompous. Keep the royal law. And realize that we'll all be judged by the law of liberty. Pray with me. O merciful God, 
for the sake of your son, our savior, you consistently withhold the bad that we all deserve. May we bear a family resemblance to you, Father. May persons that we meet understand something of the grace and mercy of God by seeing how we deal with them. Lord, I pray that you would make us to be a merciful congregation, that we would take no delight, no pleasure in dealing out judgments, but Lord, that we would be quick to understand how much your mercy is at play in our own lives. Make us to be a merciful congregation. Lord, thank you for this precious paragraph. And we would desire to live within the bounds, the healthy boundaries of the law of liberty of your commands. Because Lord, not only do we want to live safe, but we want to live in a merciful fashion. We pray these things in the epitome of mercy's name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.